I basically show that there are spikes in the volume of strategic messaging from the Russian government in the territories where they plan a particular attack just before the attack happens. Hi, and welcome to Sabi Reason's Malicious Life B-Sides. I'm Ren Levy. It's a well-known fact that the Russian government is using propaganda and the dissemination of false information as part of its war efforts against Ukraine. Russia is also far from being the only country to use propaganda this way. Many countries have done so in the past, including the United States, of course. But according to our guest in this episode, Dr. Biliana Lili, an expert on cyber and geopolitical risk and author of the book Russian Information Warfare, due to various historical reasons, the Russians have refined and perfected their propaganda techniques, going as far as integrating it as part of their cyber and kinetic attacks on Ukrainian cities. In this B-Side episode, our senior producer Nate Nelson interviewed Dr. Lily about the Russian use of instant messaging and social media platforms such as Telegram and Twitter in their war efforts. Dr. Lily discusses who they are targeting and the real-world impact their propaganda has on various populations. Enjoy the interview. So in this conversation, we're going to be focusing on Russian disinformation, which our listeners will be pretty familiar with by now. We all know that Russia does this. But in your experience, from what you've um, been exposed to, where do these methods that they use actually derive from? Some of the very early usage of propaganda and disinformation that we know of um, are from, for example, during the Napoleonic Wars, when Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812. The Russian government actually set up specific Russian military units that would um, print and disseminate propaganda uh, leaflets among their the population, the Russian population, but also the invading troops in order to erode the, mor- the morale and the will to fight of the, um, the invading forces and also to try to boost the morale of their own forces. So we have those very early examples. Then we also have very similar tactics being used around the um, 1917 Russian Revolution when the Bolsheviks used also uh, leaflets to spread propaganda. And then later on, we have in 1940, I think 1941, 1942, there was a special propaganda unit that was set as a part of the Red Army. Um, and that unit consisted of a lot of um, officers, military officers with uh, foreign language skills. And their goal was also to spread propaganda, identify messages that would particularly, that would resonate with a particular audience in a targeted state, and then um, start building disinformation and propaganda messages from there. Right. Although Russia isn't obviously the only country that does this, the US has its own history of dropping leaflets. Is it that the, the nature of Russian propaganda, the character of it is any different or just that they happen to be the enemies in this case and everybody has the same tactics? That's a really good question. The Russian government has used a lot of that propaganda because of, um, the need to, 
to contain the perspective on communism in order and to keep the cohesion of different societies that were a part of the communist the the, um, the communist space and um, communist uh, countries during the Cold War and before that. So I would say that it's become a tool, an institutionalized tool for, of statecraft for um, the Russians before communism, during communism, and afterwards as well. And it also became a part of their military strategy and military thinking very early on. And I think what the Russians were really good at was um, they identified very early on that propaganda and disinformation can be, um, it's a, it's a, it's a domain or it's a tool of warfare that could be used against entire societies to achieve a foreign policy objective. Although, not to belabor the point, there's a long and documented history of America doing the same thing, right? I mean, even in recent years, uh, Fox News, CNN, New York Times being used to sell wars to the American public or, or abroad. Is there any material difference in how these two countries go about it? In the Russian case, they have institutionalized it much better than the, the U.S. has, and they have used it for, they have used it more strategically and more pervasively, and they have already introduced it in their military units very early on and realized its potential as a part of their warfare. And I think because of the types of wars that the Russian had to fight, the Russians had to fight because of the need to try to keep the cohesion among the communist communist regimes during the Cold War, they refined the use of psychological operations and disinformation much better than other countries. I wonder if that has anything to do with the nature of the geopolitical situations they found themselves in, um, or the geographic, or maybe cultural. Uh, is there any sense in which these factors may have motivated them being earlier or stronger in this game? I think so, because the Russian government, in their perspective, in their foreign policy, foreign policy doctrine, they often describe themselves as a besieged fortress surrounded by enemies. And I think also in recent years, the Russians um, became pay painfully aware of how they need to improve their um, their command of the information space and the narrative. Because during the Chechen Wars, the First and Second Chechen Wars, and during the Georgian War in uh, 2008, the Russians, um, according to some arguments, and I do ascribe to those arguments, they lost the information war. Because the narrative was that the Russian uh, military used very brutal tactics in these wars. They they indiscriminately killed civilians. They um, uh, basically destroyed civilian architect uh, targets as well as military targets. And they were the oppressor and the invader. And I think we see that in Ukraine as well. And I think because of the history of failures in the information space and in winning over the narrative across different audiences of a very of very important events for the Russians, I think because of that right now, they have invested a lot more in trying to control the narrative around the war in Ukraine. And that's why we see so many, um, we see it investing, we see RT and Sputnik increasing their, their coverage. Uh, we see a lot of stories about um, how uh, the Ukrainians don't have the right to exist, how Russian minorities have been suppressed in Ukraine, how the Russian government is winning there, what they're doing. We see the Russians more actively trying to take over the information space with the narratives that they're creating. Could you dive more into what's going on right now, maybe as we speak, 
uh, that Russia is doing to affect the war in Ukraine through information warfare? Absolutely. Um, so today, in comparison to before, there are um, the actors and uh, the, the amplifiers and the channels through, through which Russia is spreading disinformation and propaganda are significantly significantly more diverse. We have um, we have Russian military units that are using propaganda campaigns and disinformation. Uh, we have uh, state officials, also Russian state-sponsored media channels that are spreading a very divisive and controversial narratives, very pro-Russian narratives. We also have uh, the Russians using a lot of social media to also spread certain messages. And um, social media channels are used by um, by the GRU or military intelligence and other um, Russian state-sponsored departments, but also by hacktivists, private sector um, trolls, and um, other Russians who don't necessarily work for the Russian government. So you have this this explosion of actors and channels that make it a lot harder to trace narratives and also to understand and assess the, their effectiveness. And what are all these various actors actually saying? We've seen a number of narratives that have been spread through state-sponsored media, but also social media channels in order to to cause, to, to intimidate the Ukrainians, but also to spread confusion among them about the war and to try to um, gain more support for the Russian narratives for, or for the Russian cause and specifically for the idea that the Russians are justified to be in Ukraine, that they're trying to protect um ethnic Russians, but also um, the, there's other narratives that the Russians uh, have the right to to control Ukraine and that Ukrainian territory actually belongs to Russia and Ukraine hasn't had the right to exist. So there are a lot of those narratives that have been uh, circulated around for the purposes of intimidation and confusion. What's also interesting, in some of the cities that the Russian government has has occupied before the occupation with conventional forces has started the russian government has created um has created a infrastructure to try to spread certain disinformation um, narratives and specifically that's happened through telegram before the russian government invades certain small cities they have set up fake accounts of local media channels of where which are um aired in those particular or which are which exist in those particular cities but they are setting up fake telegram accounts in order to substitute the local media channels and spread through those telegram accounts information that has been republished through from RIA Novosti and TASS which are Russian state-sponsored uh, media agencies and they try in in this way it seems that the Russian government is trying to take over the information space by increasing the volume of pro-Russian messaging through social media channels that they're setting up before the invasion. Then when they take over a particular city, that volume of information continues to increase. But when they move move on or leave a particular city, that volume of information starts to decrease. So this suggests to me that there are certain patterns of behavior of how the Russian is trying to the Russians are trying to take the information space and flood a particular area with pro-Russian messages and their conventional military tactics. I'm curious if what Russia does is lay the the cyber disinformation groundwork before they actually invade a place, could you then anticipate where they might invade in the future by tracking where they're starting to do uh, cyber operations online now. I think so. It gives you one indicator, right? We can um, 
never be sure just with one indicator um, whether we could predict an attack or not, but it could definitely serve as one indicator, a warning indicator that can help us to anticipate um, a cyber operation. And I've actually been focused on this point throughout my research over the past five years. And in some of the cases that I've examined before the Ukraine war, uh, there were cases of Russian cyber attacks, for example, um, against against Estonia in 2007, if your audience probably remembers that, that this was the very first case of um, Russian state-sponsored large-scale DDoS attacks against the country, and this was Estonia in 2007. And the Russians launched four waves of DDoS attacks. And I uh, showed in my research that just before each of the, the DDoS attacks, before each wave, there was a spike in the volume of media communication or strategic messaging in the against or um, through or targeted towards uh, the Estonian audiences through Russian media channels. So it, there was this correlation, at least correlation. I'm not claiming causation, but I am hoping that with with increasing the number of cases where we see this pattern, we could actually get closer to causation. With this, I basically show that there are spikes in the volume of strategic messaging from the Russian government in the territories where they plan a particular attack just before the attack happens. The best strategy for organizations to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware is to prevent the attack from being successful in the first place. Cyber Reason remains undefeated in the fight against ransomware because it moved beyond alerting to deliver an operation-centric approach that detects and prevents ransomware attacks at the earliest stages of initial ingress and lateral movement. The Cyber Reason predictive response capability disrupts ransomware attacks prior to data exfiltration and long before the ransomware payload can be delivered. Visit cyberreason.com to learn more about predictive ransomware protection and how your organization can realize both increased efficiency and efficacy through an operation-centric approach to security operations. So it sounds like Russian disinformation doesn't necessarily just happen in its own vacuum. They pair it with... Uh, Absolutely. Kinetic attacks with cyber attacks. Are there any other interesting cases that you found uh, where this partnership, this synergy worked particularly well? Absolutely. And Nate, this is one great point that I just want to mention. This very closely mirrors Russia's own military strategy. Because in the strategy, in the idea of information warfare, information warfare is basically defined by the Russians as confrontation between two or more states in the information space, and it is conducting for, conducted for the purposes of creating technical disruptions, but also psychological disruptions. And those two are interrelated. They're, they're part of the same military concept, in, uh, according to the Russian government's playbook. And in Ukraine, we have also seen how the Russians have used... Uh, have combined some of these tactics where they've used um, even uh, missile strikes with cyber operations, with um, 
propaganda campaigns or disinformation campaigns. Um, several examples are, for example, there were two um, Russian uh, two uh, radio stations that were hacked by the Russians in Ukraine, and um, after the the stations were hacked, the Russians used them to spread messages that Zelensky was hospitalized, which was um, which was definitely a fabricated information. Zelensky wasn't hospitalized. We also have an example in uh, late 2020. There were um, cyber attacks against the energy infrastructure of Ukraine just before uh, the Russians launched missile strikes against the energy infrastructure. And at the same time, there was a uh, propaganda campaign for Russian channels and social media that was emphasizing that the, the power outages that were caused by the missile strikes and the cyber attacks uh, across the country, across Ukraine, were um, the result of the Ukrainian government's policies and activities and were not the result of the Russian strikes. So you had, in that particular case, a combination between cyber attacks, missile strikes, and propaganda campaigns all at once. You know, when I hear, you know, th- this 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 narrative that they did about like Zelensky being hospitalized. I wonder who are they targeting with messages like this? Are they targeting everybody point. or yeah, like a specific yeah. demographic? Mm-hmm. I think in this particular case, they're trying to target the Ukrainian population and all the, the, um, the Ukrainians that are fighting against the Russians at the moment in Ukraine. And uh, aim, the aim of these operations is to erode the Ukrainians will to fight and demoralize them to the point where they surrender to the Russians or to the point where the Russians can actually achieve a victory, military victory in Ukraine at the moment. But sometimes when the Russians spread certain messages, they are aimed at domestic audiences, the Russian population itself, Ukrainian audiences or foreign audiences as well. So I would say that those three are the different groups that the Russians target with their messaging. When they're targeting groups outside of the, these two countries, uh, what is their goal and who are they talking to? Are they talking to me and you? They definitely are. Yeah, absolutely. We're also part of their target audience. According to um, Russian information warfare doctrine, information warfare and disinformation that includes disinformation is targeted of entire populations of a state adversary to the Russian government or a state in which the Russian government is trying to influence certain behavior. Influence what behavior, though, and and how, say, if they are talking to you and me? The objective could be to erode our trust in our own institutions, to make sure that uh, we are polarized as much as possible, that we don't agree on important topics. But also the objective sometimes is to to spread the idea of the Russian state as being the liberator of Ukraine, to uh, increase Russia's reputation on the international stage, to, to also solidify Russia's partnerships with different countries. And also we've seen in certain cases that the Russian government uses the war in Ukraine to distance or to polarize certain communities and to, to bring certain communities farther away from the West. And I'm specifically referring here, um, yesterday I started looking at different um, RT media that, that are in different languages and where they have gained popularity. And just for the audience, RT is one of Russia's main state-sponsored media channels that is um, also uh, broadcasting in different countries all over the world. And they have... Um, versions of RT in different languages based on where um, RT is being broadcast. And um, for example, RT Arabic, 
is one of the main RT channels in a, in a foreign language. And it has increased its uh, viewership since, or its viewers have increased since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last uh, since last February 2022. And what um, I've noticed by just looking at the website and um, different um, articles that are that are being published on the website and the different videos, they're directly taken from RT Russia and are just translated into Arabic. And the types of narratives that are, of course, broadcast uh, through RT Arabic are very pro-Russian. They, they argue that um, Ukrainians are um, oppressing uh, the Russian ethnic population in uh, Ukraine, that the Russian government is actually liberating the Ukrainian territories from the oppressive Kiev regime. And there are narratives around um, the idea that it was the United States and in NATO that are the aggressors in Ukraine, and they're the reason why Russia is now fighting a war in Ukraine, and Russia is actually fighting a proxy war against NATO, the US, and the CIA. For some reason, they really like to criticize and uh, hone on the CIA a lot. Basically, they say that those are the main malicious actors that are that the Russians are fighting in Ukraine. And for these narratives, those narratives are spreading basically uh, across the Arabic world. And there are more than 85 million viewers of RT Arabic um, as of last, I believe that was a statistic from last summer. So probably by now there are even more. And RT Arabic has become one of the most popular channels in the Arabic world. And this to me is very problematic because this suggests that those audiences are buying into the Russian narratives which is very anti-Western and pro-Russian. And I uh, think that this will have very negative long-term effects because those populations will will continue to build their animosity towards the United States, towards NATO and uh, the Western world. Yeah, I could could totally see how um, appealing to anti-CIA sentiment would be an effective strategy, particularly in that part of the world. Uh, which brings up the question, you know, the the Nazis thing is just so ridiculous, so outlandish, but they are pushing a lot of narratives, as you've said. Biliana, in your experience, have you come across any that are compelling, that do have some legs to them? Nate, absolutely. And the most impactful the most impactful disinformation campaigns are the ones that have a kernel of truth in them. And often in the ways the Russian portrays certain narratives, there are certain pieces of information that that may not be necessarily fake or maybe maybe truthful, but let's say, for example, exaggerated. And one of those examples is the narrative around Ukraine, the Ukrainian government being corrupt. There is a lot of corruption in Ukraine. And there is a lot of corruption in Russia. But the way the Russians are using the narrative is to amplify it to an extent where it's become so pervasive that Ukraine is, that Kiev is a, is a, is a mafia regime. It's a regime controlled by Nazis. Yeah. And are there any uh, ways, any metrics for determining how effective these tactics have been either within Ukraine, within Russia, or around the world in places like the Middle East? I mean, as you said, you know, 85 million viewers, it's a lot. Absolutely. And that's a great question. I uh, think we're not looking enough at effectiveness. We're looking a lot of, uh, at metrics of performance, but not at metrics of effectiveness. And what do I mean by that? Like, we look at a narrative and we look at 
how many viewers have seen it. We look at how many people have have engaged with a particular post on on Twitter or Facebook. We can we have a, m- a way to measure these oper- or these um, uh, performance metrics because they are they're ingrained in the platform. Or we can we have a way to collect that data, but we we haven't really established clear and effective measures and methods to understand what the effectiveness of these narratives is. For example, how many people's opinions has been have been changed because they have seen a particular post or a particular they have read a particular article about Ukraine? Or how many people's not only opinions have changed but also their behavior has changed because of what they have seen? Maybe now that you put it like that though, it just seems so impossible to measure something like opinions or even like how do we even begin to gouge this we have seen enough examples um, of certain cases where particular disinformation has been spread and that it had it has caused certain behavior to know that those narratives could lead to actual changes in behavior and changes in opinion and um i can give you some of those examples for example in uh, Germany in 2017, there was the so-called Lisa case. There was a 13-year-old girl. A 13-year-old girl. She was an ethnic Russian uh, girl. She disappeared for one night, and the police started looking for her. She, uh, the police found her. Or the next morning, she uh, she returned, and it turned out that uh, she she has escaped to be with her boyfriend overnight. But by the time she returned the narrative spread that she was most likely raped by Middle Eastern immigrants to to Germany. And the narrative was used to say that the government of uh, then uh, Chancellor Merkel was ineffective in trying to integrate the, the refugees from Syria and other places at the time. And because of the ineffective policies of the German government and specifically um, Chancellor Merkel, because of that, the Russians were suffering and even to the point where this resulted in the rape of a Russian ethnic girl. And by the time the girl was discovered, and it turned out that this narrative is completely fake, um, the Russian government has already picked up the narrative and Foreign Minister Lavrov had already come come up, up publicly criticizing the German government and saying that it was their failure to protect our Lisa. Basically, he called the girl, her name was Lisa, he called her our Lisa to, to evoke the sentiment of her belonging to Russia. And then the Russian embassy in London also picked up the story and, the, and Lavrov's representation of the story and also tweeted about it. And then the result was that there were a number of protests that were organized via Facebook and other social media channels, a number of actual physical protests in Germany that included German-Russian minorities and new Nazi groups that were um, that were holding signs with the sign Our Lisa, and they were against the German government. And that all fed into, that time, the, the elections that were taking place in Germany in 2017. And um, yes, the, the, the German, uh, the parties that won were Merkel's party again. Uh, but for the first time since the Second World War, the party alternative for Deutschland, who is a very right party, won seats in parliament. And one of the the, the, the analysis that I've seen uh, argued that um, because of the Russian ethnic minorities in the country and the representation of the, the German government as being ineffective in integrating um, other refugees from the Middle East and other places, because of that narrative that the Russian government very much supported, 
um, far-right party in Germany actually won uh uh, seats in parliament and the whole idea about lisa the lisa case and the protests fed into that whole idea of the german government uh, having ineffective policies towards immigrants in what ways are government or military agencies news outlets organizations or just regular people fighting back against these disinformation campaigns we have quite a number of different different initiatives that have been established around trying to identify, then monitor the spread of disinformation, and then trying to understand how to counter it better. And we have a lot of, for example, um, Facts versus Disinfo is a website set up by the European Union that Union that debunks disinformation campaigns. We have NATO's uh, Stratcom in Latvia. That's another center, the Center for Strategic Communication, that also um, focuses on various strategic messaging narratives and disinformation operations. So we have those um, agencies that have already been formed. I think uh, with regards to how else we're fighting it, um, Social media platforms have been regularly taking down accounts, uh, fake accounts or inauthentic accounts um, from from their platforms and also helping Ukraine in this way. Another very important element is educating our own population and teaching them how to be critical consumers of information. Because disinformation eventually spreads through so many different channels and it's spread by so many different actors that no matter how much we try to to curtail its, its spread and to contain it through technical measures, I think eventually we will have to build resilience in our own minds and in, in our own populations. And I think this happens with media and civic education and with, with educating our own people on how to recognize disinformation narratives, how to, how to consider, how to evaluate whether a source of information is credible or not, and basically build this in our own educational system. And very good examples of that are Finland and Estonia and Sweden. Their governments and their educational systems already have it. Have, um, for example, they start already in kindergarten to teach students or to teach children how to be, how to be um, critical consumers of information and how to read the news, how to consume information, what facts, what information to believe and what not to believe. And I think we need that sort of education in our in the states as well. And is there any way we can tell whether any of these measures and initiatives are actually making a real impact? Yes, through case studies, I think we can. For example, um, just looking at where the Russian government's disinformation campaigns most likely had an effect, like, for example, in Germany and also in the United States in the 2016 elections and afterwards, there are some, some elements to suggest that perhaps those campaigns were effective because People, people are reading RT. People are following uh, Russian, Russian trolls on Twitter and are spreading information that those trolls are, are circulating. But in countries like, for example, Norway, where the Russian government set up RT Nord, which is basically the, the Norwegian version of RT, they had to shut it down in less than an year because Norwegians were just laughing at the articles and they weren't believing them. So I think there was the fact that the Norwegian in the Norwegian population, the Russian 
disinformation machine couldn't really pick up, couldn't really gain traction, is a really good case study to to investigate further. And I think a part of why it didn't pick up in Norway is because the Norwegians have have education have been educated to recognize this information there they know how to what sources of information to rely on and what not to rely on and they are not as um as impressionable as certain other populations well we could talk about this for hours longer but that does it for my prepared questions now uh biliana is there anything that feels left unsaid or any last word or takeaway you'd like to leave people with be aware that not all information that you read may be from credible sources and be careful with the type of information that you decide to share on social media because there are governments like the Russian government that is using strategic messaging and disinformation not in order to to amplify our own beliefs in our own democracy, but in order to erode our democracy from within. And um, there are the so-called unwitting participants in the spread of that information that could be any one of us that is reposting or um, helping to amplify the strategic messaging campaign of of a Russian agent. So I would leave our audience with this message. Make sure that you um, you pay attention to the sources from which you you learn information, from which you consume information, and the sources that you share. Oh my God.